Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Morning Report podcast, supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. I'm Daniel Ennis, today's host. I'm joined today by Barry Kassin, Stefan Voye, Vesna Mihailovich, Katrina Dudkevich, and Lawrence Chow. And today we're talking about a patient that I saw in 2015. I was on an elective in Toronto at that time, and I thought this case was so unusual that I've essentially been thinking about it ever since I saw that person. And I would say that this case was one thing that raised my interest in rheumatology as a potential career. So a few months ago, I actually returned to the same clinic on another elective, and the staff remembered this specific case, and she put me back in touch with that patient who agreed to let us use her story for the podcast today. So I have to admit that the case isn't solved, so part of the reason for presenting it is so that I can get some input from some other clever uh, medical detectives. So if you guys come up with the solution, I'm going to pass all that back to uh, the treating rheumatologist. So let's get into the case. So this is Ms. K. She's a 55-year-old woman. Her past medical history is significant only for a traumatic injury to the right shoulder uh, with resultant chronic pain. She also has longstanding microcytic anemia of unknown etiology. So she had a negative upper scope and a negative lower scope. In terms of medications, because of the chronic pain in the shoulder, she's on fentanyl and oxycodone. And in terms of social history, she's been smoking for about 40 years. She worked in the produce section of a grocery store, but she's now retired. And she has no relevant family history to speak of. So here's what happened. Other than the chronically painful shoulder, she was doing well until 2007. And at that time, she developed rapidly progressive weight loss, totaling 30 pounds. And that occurred over the course of six months. And it was accompanied by heat intolerance and profuse sweating. And then her symptoms at six months essentially stabilized. They didn't change for about the next five years or so. And she did have some investigations as her symptoms were progressing. So she had baseline blood work, which just suggested iron deficiency anemia. So uh, it was microcytic anemia. She had the EGD at the upper scope and the colonoscopy at that time. And that was all negative. Her thyroid markers were normal. Other basic blood work and age-appropriate cancer screening was done, and that was all normal as well. And she had hepatitis screening, which was the screen was positive, the RNA was negative. So she is stable for five years with those symptoms. Her weight doesn't continue to drop, but she never regains it. And then 2012, she develops new pain in the wrists without swelling, redness, decreased range of motion. And she develops symmetric swelling of the MCPs and the PIPs. She notes skin thickening and tightening over the hands and feet, and that progresses over the next year. By 2013, she actually starts to notice redness in her nail beds. And we really kind of wrestled with this history. We were not sure if she actually had Raynaud's or not. So in terms of just the summary of investigations, you can ask if there's anything else that you really want, but these, this is what we, we found overall. She had a microcytic anemia at 79 with a ferritin of 5. She had normal renal and liver function. Her ANA, her ENA, double-stranded DNA, anti-CCP, and rheumatoid factor were all negative. And jumping ahead to a little bit of just important content knowledge, systemic sclerosis, uh, scleroderma, ANA is positive in more than 90%. So that would be unusual for that diagnosis. She had a CT of the chest that shows ground glass opacities in bilateral lower lobes. So that's as, that's the point at which... She's referred to you. So walk me through what your approach is going to be at this point in the case. Can 
I ask, does she have any symptoms from the ground glass findings in her lungs? So she doesn't report any respiratory symptoms at all, just general fatigue. But she's not really all that physically active at this point, so a little bit hard to tell about like functional decline, but nothing precipitous. And is she having constitutional symptoms now? Uh, she's no longer having constitutional symptoms other than the generalized fatigue, but no more weight loss. She's just not been able to put that weight back on. So she's 30 pounds lighter than at her kind of like baseline weight. And I'd say like with that weight loss, looks unwell with it, like is not feeling well. So are her symptoms of heat intolerance and um, and weight loss persistent or is it just a weight loss and now a new weight loss? So there's no additional weight loss. The heat intolerance is still there, but not bothering her as much as it was initially. So maybe that symptom has actually waned a little bit. And then the newer symptoms are the the polysynovitis or joint involvement. Exactly. So that those are all new in, in this in this presentation now, which she didn't have that before. Exactly. Not present at the beginning, five years later, develops the joint symptoms, possible Raynaud's, and the nail bed changes. And then one final question, um, is she eating? Yeah, super important question. So she was trying to eat. I think overall she felt that her oral intake was probably less than it had been when she was at 30 pounds heavier, but she is not having food intolerances. She's not having dysphagia or gastrointestinal symptoms that are limiting her eating, maybe somewhat decreased appetite. So, and, and the starting point for her weight loss to now makes her a normal body habitus or? Uh, she, has, she has a normal BMI, okay. but it's on the lower end of normal. Uh, and just with respect to her iron deficiency anemia, um, other than the scopes, has she had other workup, the usual things, looking for, say, celiac disease, um, things like that to rule out other causes? So she had scope with biopsy, which was negative for celiac. And what else would you like? Um, that's all. <laughs> that's it. Okay, smear is normal for her as well. So uh, presumably the iron deficiency has been recognized, but, but has not failed to respond to oral iron? That's correct. I believe that she was treated with oral iron without any significant improvement in the anemia. With the red nail bed uh, changes, are the capillary, there's dilation of the capillary loops when you look under magnification or not? So you may be able to infer that from the, the erythema at the nail beds, but it's not been assessed in this patient at this point. Okay. So you don't have that information. I think it would be like safe to assume that there's probably dilatation, but can't confirm that for you. And I'd say like most people would not have the tools specifically to look at nail beds other than like a, an otoscope mm-hmm. or just putting your eyeball really close to the nail, which is the cheap man's otoscope, I guess. Um, so you see what you see. It looks red to you. I'm just going to jump in. This is Stefan for the listeners. I'm lost is what I would say. Like, and this is not for the absence of any bells ringing, but just maybe many too many bells ringing. So when I see a case like this, like I don't, so people have asked you 10 more questions, no new relevant things have come up. Like, I think you told us all the things that can be known about this lady, probably. It's not like she's got some travel history that you're not telling us about. And honestly, even if she had it, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I think probably everyone here is thinking that this woman may have an inflammatory or less likely an infectious 
condition of some kind. Infection seems less likely only because she's had it for years. And whatever the, unless it's like tuberculosis or something, I can't think of that many infections that would make you sick and then stabilize over, make you acutely ill and then stabilize over many years. So like, I'm not really too hot for any infectious causes here. And then the issue with inflammatory conditions is that she's presenting with a phenotype that isn't described by any one inflammatory condition. That's kind of where I'm a little bit stuck. So the lady you you gave us in the preamble that she doesn't have a diagnosis, and and I I know lots of people like this who have like signs of an inflammatory condition, a workup that's unfruitful, and who just kind of trundle on like this forever. I, I think the lady may have a disease that just that hasn't doesn't have a name or hasn't been discovered or described yet. Inflammatory things. I mean, so the the iron deficiency, it's unusual for someone to have totally unexplained iron deficiency. So that one, I, I think that's something, that's an avenue that I want to pursue. And it may be that that unlocks the whole thing. I don't know. So like, you have an acronym for microcytic anemia. So I mean, it, she does have, she does have iron deficiency. You've proven that. So microcytic anemia with low ferritin. Is there, so, so is she losing iron somewhere? Or is she peeing out iron? Or is she not absorbing it? She's not reason? absorbing iron. So, so like that probably does need to get solved. I would bet that that does not unlock the case. Because then she goes on to develop all this other stuff and gets acutely, like, we're looking for a disease that has an illness script that sounds like, over a short period of time, I suddenly lose 30 pounds, develop heat intolerance and sweating, and then everything kind of subsides, but I never gain my weight back. I don't have a disease that has that illness script. I think that's where I'm a little bit stuck. So I agree. I I think there's another aspect to this. So I think that we're assuming it's iron deficient based on her ferritin and her microcytic anemia, but we haven't shown anything. I guess two things I'm thinking about. One is I think we need to prove it's iron deficient. We oh, haven't no. we haven't done that yet. Uh oh. Um, and and I think that that's important because if it is iron deficient, I think we're talking about a process in the gut, perhaps, and in the joints. Mrs. Whipple comes to mind. But there are many other uh, uh, diseases that could. But but independent of that, if it's not if it's not iron deficient and she has hypoferritinemia, which is just that's her, then maybe she has another reason for her. Maybe she has thalassemia, uh, Trey. So I think that's to me. I think that's where I'd be going. I, I love the idea of a podcast that only has eight or so episodes in the bank and and two of them end up having Whipple's disease. <laughs> Wait, and she's a woman. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so we have these various avenues worth going down. When you said this initially a couple of years ago when I was a resident, I, f- I found this really helpful for me. You said, like, what is my window into the case? And sometimes that window is something really broad that you can use to start your investigations, but sometimes you want to pick something that is so specific, there's just not a lot else that can do it. And if you solve the specific thing, you solve the case because that's like the pathognomonic or almost pathognomonic feature. And so in this case, I think there are a couple items that are like fairly specific. I guess the microcytic anemia does have a fairly narrow differential for what causes microcytosis and, and the anemia, and that's the iron deficiency, the differential for iron deficiency, I suppose, is broader. But what about the, like, skin tightening? 
does that feel like a window into the case that would be specific? To me, that that hinges on the ability of the clinician to tell me whether this is real skin tightening or skin thickening or not. Like, I think I've seen people who think that they have skin tightening and it never really turns into anything. And they've read online somewhere that they have tightened skin and that's a sign that they have a connective tissue disease. And so I need to know that the person who saw this, this patient, you or your attending or whoever, really thought it was real skin tightening. If it is, I can... I mean, this maybe speaks to my knowledge guess, but I can only think of one thing or a couple of things that caused that. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm going to tell you what happened when we saw this person in clinic. The story is exactly as you've heard. In terms of the physical exam features that we elicited, and I feel like we can confirm, there is true skin tightening that is distal to the MCPs. We detect a little bit of swelling at those MCPs, nothing really at the wrist, but there's stress tenderness and it's tender when we push on it. We ultimately decide that she probably has Raynaud's and we have a capillaroscope so we get to look at her nail beds and she has dilated loops and she has some dropout if that helps you. So abnormal nail folds for sure, skin tightening we think for sure. There's one other feature I am going to withhold because I like being withholding, but So when I presented this case to my staff, here's what I thought. I thought despite the absence of an ANA, which would be unusual, this person has ground glass opacities with which without a biopsy, I'm I'm just going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say is connected and that the skin tightening and the ground glass opacities and the Raynaud's is enough for me to be suspicious of a connective tissue disease. I think to a degree, I am okay with the longer duration of symptoms and perhaps she's had some waxing and waning in there but she was bad she got a bit better she's getting worse it's evolving i think that that's acceptable as a history for an autoimmune disease although totally strange but acceptable enough and so i think this person has systemic sclerosis i think it's scleroderma and so that's what i say to the staff and the staff says okay well what's your differential for scleroderma? And I remember thinking in my head that I had always thought of scleroderma as the last thing on the differential and that I didn't have a differential for that. And so I had literally nothing to, I said, I have no idea. That's the only thing I can think of that causes skin tightening. So, so I, I think that that's an important aspect because I think there is a differential, but she doesn't meet, at least historically, some of the conditions that would lead to this type of presentation, a scleroderma-like presentation, unless she's had investigations or treatments and transplants and MRIs with GAD that we don't know about. So you're getting at the differential for for skin tightening. Yeah. And so I'm going to fill in just a little bit of information about that differential because I think that that's, it's, it's interesting and it's important. So scleroderma, which I think is the one that everyone thinks of as skin tightening, connective tissue disease, it always progresses distal to proximal. It always involves the hands, except in the variant that has no skin involvement, which is rare, but it always involves the fingers. It's rarely seen in pediatrics outside of like overlap syndromes like mixed connective tissue disease or dermatomyositis with some scleroderma-like features. So it's an adult disease predominantly. On the differential are some really interesting entities I think worth knowing about. Eosinophilic fasciitis, which often spares the hands and the feet. It's often pediatric, 
and it's really deep. So if you do a skin biopsy, you're actually not going to see any specific features for eosinophilic fasciitis. So you need to get that deep fascial biopsy. And the fascial involvement causes tethering of the skin. So there's this thing called the groove sign, which is where you lift the limb up, the veins drain, and you get these grooves where the veins were because there's tethering of the skin at those locations. So that's eosinophilic fasciitis. Scleromyxedema is a cutaneous mucinosis. So you get mucin deposits in the skin, and it can cause little like bubbles of mucin, but also skin tightening that looks a lot like scleroderma. And it's almost always associated with a monoclonal gammopathy. And it has its own recognizable features. So lionine facies, which is like thick glabella with like thick wrinkles, and sharpeosine, which like the dog kind of has like the the skin takes on this um, texture of like very like big wrinkles. Scleroedema, so not scleromyxedema, scleroedema, strongly associated with type 1 diabetes, and it's woody skin thickening commonly over the uh, upper back. And then there's some other really rando ones. So these are chemical exposures. So there have been, and, and we'll come back to one, but interesting exposures in the Paso L-tryptophan can cause a scleroderma-like reaction, toxic oil syndrome, and some organic solvents. There's some medications on the list like bleomycin, taxanes, graft-versus-host disease, and what you are getting at, which is nephrogenic systemic sclerosis, so exposure to GAD, um, usually in someone with kidney failure, um, you get this diffuse uh, skin thickening. Amyloid is also on the list. That is a pretty like narrow yet broad, like I guess there's lots of different things that I just said, but so skin thickness has its own differential that I wasn't aware of at the time that we saw this case. But it still kind of sounds like scleroderma to me. Like I, I can't see the things that are fitting with these other differentials. What about Raynaud's, like Vesna? When someone has like Raynaud's, what's your differential there? How do you approach Raynaud's? So we look for primary versus secondary uh, Raynaud's. Uh, primary usually starts when you're sort of younger. You'll get your typical onset to triggers like the cold, um, but it's usually not associated with ulceration of the fingers or such, and it's assumed to be a benign etiology. Versus secondary, we it's it can have a sort of a later onset of age and will usually then uh, lead to certain ulcerations, digit infarcts and such. And in terms of etiology, we sort of lump it into um, either a malignancy associated or inflammatory disease associated or like a mechanical um, type of cause. So from jackhammering or things like that. So if we're in Our Lady thinking inflammatory, so scleroderma is up there, or systemic sclerosis is up there as a cause for the herenodes, as would be certain vasculitis, namely secondary vasculitis rather than primary vasculitis, uh, although primary would be on there as well. What else am I missing here? In lupus can also give it to you, not that that's what we're thinking in Our Lady necessarily. Those are sort of the big categories. Totally. So I think in like a, a, a smoker, for sure, you, you wonder about what's called Berger's disease or thromboangiitis obliterans, which is like almost only seen in smokers. And you can get digital vasculitis, but really bad Raynaud's too. So I think that's on the list. And when you said malignancy, I think hematologic malignancies, Mm -hmm. including like cryoclobulinemias, cryofibrinogenemias, which is kind of like similar disease spectrum, cold agglutinin stuff, 
um, polycythemia. Those can come with Raynaud's. Certain infections have Raynaud's. Yeah, so so Raynaud's doesn't really narrow it down quite as much, I think, as the skin thickening. Are there, in terms of like windows into the case, is there anything else that you guys would use at this point to try and solve the case? Well, my only comment would be, and I guess this is what I don't know is, well, I don't know many things, but the dropout of the capillaries and the dilatation, I'm not sure how that relates to the other differentials and how it supports one versus the other, or is it is it something that is common to all of these in the differential? So the dropout or nail bed changes is very unusual or essentially absent in people with primary Raynaud's, which I don't think anyone here is like thinking that she has primary Raynaud's. It's onset later in life. Um, it's associated with these nail bed changes. So, so it suggests strongly a secondary cause. Of the secondary causes, certainly connective tissue disease would be high on that list. I think it's a good question that I don't know the answer to as to whether some of the other things like malignancy associated comes with the nail bed changes. Um, I, I don't know that for sure. Or like endocrinopathies like carcinoid and hypothyroidism, do those, they can cause Raynaud's, but do they cause nail bed changes? I don't know. But the presence of abnormal nail beds has a positive predictive value of about 50% for the development of connective tissue disease as the underlying cause for your Raynaud's. So if you're seeing someone for the question of like, oh, is there Raynaud's primary or secondary? And the only test you do is look at their nail beds and it's dilated or tortuous or there's dropout, that is a s- strongly suggests that there's going to be some kind of transformation to another disease so that it's, it is secondary. So I can only half answer mm-hmm. that question, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So any other thoughts at this point? I mean, maybe one more thought, and that's the, I guess, back to the iron deficiency and the, and the possibility of malabsorption. And so even though the endoscopies were, were done, there wouldn't have been a deep enough biopsy to see the underlying tissues uh, and whether there's thickening of the, her bowel, like there's thickening of her skin, and that's where we're, and that may be part of her a clue that where we're going with this. True. So, any other thoughts? Uh, I'm going to channel one of the other internists here at St. Paul's, Dr. Onrod, the venerated Dr. Onrod. I mean, I think before entertaining a bunch of other really uncommon diagnoses, I'm still, so let's say, Systemic sclerosis was our number one candidate diagnosis here, albeit like how how likely is that? I don't really know, but it's likelier than any of those other things that you brought up. I'm still left wondering how she lost 30 pounds, but anyway, let's say we're going to park that one because no one seems to be interested in that. It's not coming up. <laughs> let's say systemic sclerosis is the most likely thing or the most, let's say it's the most likely thing that we have on our list right now. Before I would work up any of those other things, before I would consider them seriously, I'd want to just make an effort to fully rule out systemic sclerosis. So I would say like having a negative ENA and a negative ANA panel for me does not rule out systemic sclerosis. And I say that only because I know that their sensitivity is not 100%. But then honestly, I'd need to phone someone or look something up in terms of how would I prove or disprove that diagnosis? You know what I mean? Like I'm not going to go after a bunch of these other really weird things. You should see some of the things that Barry has on his list here. It's like these it's way out there right now. So his list always looks. Yeah, like when that. his list looks like Those that, they're just the usual suspects. <laughs> for, it's for terrifying. Yeah. Now it's I'm sweating and losing weight. Um, but, Same uh, list. But yeah, I mean, I, I so so this is what I'd be using my phone a friend as a general internist to say like, hey, so ANA negative systemic sclerosis. Has anyone seen that? 
and then figure out how they made or, or, or ruled out that diagnosis. Katrina, what are you thinking about at this point? What's on, what's on your mind? Well, the one thing that I was thinking kind of similar to what um, Dr. Foy is saying now is like, obviously it's not a perfect rule out test. Is there a way for us to go and order those more, more specific antibodies for scleroderma or systemic sclerosis, even though that was a negative test and maybe then they're more specific. And if we have a really, really high pretest possibility, that might be better to rule it in. Um, the other thing I'm wondering, obviously getting like tissue we always think about and would a skin biopsy help to give us more information in this person as to exactly what's going on what a great idea so we're going to get that skin biopsy because that's i think that's a a good idea you you have found pathology or i'm telling you that someone found pathology and the accessible pathology right now is that there is skin thickening no one should really have thickening of their skin so skin biopsy is on the list for sure and so you phone, this patient is sent essentially to the rheumatolo- to the uh, scleroderma clinic in Toronto for assessment. And they're seen, and the final diagnosis there is that this is likely systemic sclerosis, but more workup is still needed. The one thing that they notice, they being me and the staff, I guess, that, that's when we saw them. The one thing that we noticed that we could not explain was this next feature. So on history, she describes that in 2014, she starts to notice discoloration of her palms and ultimately becomes diffusely hyperpigmented. Her friends start to ask her about like, oh, like you look tanned, like did you go on vacation? She didn't go on vacation. Uh, And I would say that when we saw her, we didn't think it looked tanned at all. We thought she looked blue. Her color was legit blue. And she ended up seeing a couple dermatologists, and I think dermatologists have a, a nicer handle on colors, much better than I do. And so across those notes, it described as slate gray or blue gray discoloration. So if that like spectrum of color helps at all, I would say to my eye, her palms and her abdomen were as blue as that pen. To the listeners, I'm pointing to a blue pen. (laughs) The rest of her body was, I think, still blue, but more on the blue-gray spectrum. It also did involve her sclera, and it was inside of her ears, but it seemed to spare her mucosa. I'm getting less happy. I'm I'm, I'm less happy now than I was even two minutes ago. Like, I'm less happy because you're pointing out something that I should probably know about, and then just don't. I, I have a very, like, abridged approach to skin discoloration like you described. Um, I know that that can happen in, in people who work with silver for like long periods of time. There's also another con- condition called ochronosis that I don't really know anything about except to know it's on my list of things that can cause purple or blue or gray, gray discoloration. But now I'm getting a little mad because like this is a new feature. I was already pretty lost. Now I just feel worse about myself. I feel like that's my job as like the host is to find a case that shames everyone. Mission accomplished. Mission right? accomplished. But I think the other thing is her her view was that she was she was pigmented, she was tanned, but other people so does she have visual problems or does she not see the blue that the rest of you saw? <laughs> that's a you know what, we didn't check her vision. Um, that's a good point. I, I, the way I interpreted it, and, and maybe you're right that there was like actually a color problem, right. but the way I, we interpreted it was that it was probably such a gradual change that 
it it was just it was too slow to like n- notice like today I was normal my normal skin color and like today I'm blue so I I think it was just it the gradualness of the change explains the maybe the lack of um, insight on the skin color that's how we took it but you have a different um, well I, feeling I about don't that. it's just I mean I I would think unless you're colorblind uh, blue and and brown wouldn't be uh, maybe maybe colorblind people can see that and uh, so I just wondered why she saw that I mean it's just interesting that now she's getting color changes in her skin um, five years ten years after her initial presentation seven years after her initial presentation and in just in the areas of thickened skin is that correct uh, the color changes are the whole body has changed colors the whole body the whole she, she's hyper pigmented everywhere the bluest parts of her body are palms and abdomen with the rest of it being a grayer blue but to my eye still blue still blue Come on, Barry. Insidious bluish discoloration. No, no. You gotta right. have a this is an easy one. Yeah. Senior residents just like rhyme this up, so, right? So amiodarone is something that she's she's substituting for no. fentanyl, or what? Does it look the I'm, same as a amiodarone skin discoloration? Same kind of color. Good question. I've not seen enough amiodarone discoloration. Amiodarone. Yeah. I know she's well, not. Well, but I mean, maybe she is. Stop it. <laughs> Stop. So, if this lady turns out to be on amiodarone, I'm just I'm giving up. I'm leaving the room. You can get not, the scleral like, discoloration in thalassemia, but it's usually not the whole body. What um, sort of discoloration do you get? It's like a light it's grayish, but it could look bluish too. I've got to add that to the list. I didn't know that. So um, she's bluish. She's bluish. Okay. And then osteogenesis imperfecta, but you'd expect that as like a young person in just blue sclera. Perfect, right. The blue sclera of osteogenesis but not, imperfecta. But not the whole body, right? No, I don't believe so. So I guess the first place that I started was, do patients with systemic sclerosis turn blue? No, they do not. Well, so eventually everyone yes, turns every, blue, baby. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> eventually everyone turns blue. But not, not scleroderma's fault. Yeah. So I think at this point, so I asked the staff, like, have you ever seen anyone who has scleroderma? Because that's her job. She runs the scleroderma clinic. She said no. She asked her colleague. They said no. I emailed a couple of other folks in the scleroderma community. They also said no. So we essentially said, we do think that she has systemic sclerosis or scleroderma. We think it's probably the limited cutaneous form because it's not extending beyond the elbows or above the knees. But the blue discoloration is not explained by that. That is a different thing, which I feel like is uncomfortable to say because all of this is kind of happening within the same time frame. So like, how can she have this one rare disease and also a different rare disease that we have no idea what it is? That feels uncomfortable and it felt uncomfortable then and it still feels uncomfortable. So we decided that we were going to read up on things that can turn you blue. Mm -hmm. Turns out that's actually kind of a hard thing to look up on PubMed because that's a weird differential to be looking into at all, and it's not happening that often. But Dr. Boye has already pointed out a number of important items on the list. So silver exposure, called argyria, used to be much more common than it is now, but um, silver colloid or colloidal silver is still used in a lot of um, natural supplementation or naturopathic remedies. So that's a potential culprit, although she does not admit to any specific silver exposure gold exposure. So patients with rheumatologic conditions who are used to be on gold, really rare 
treatment these days would get what's called chrysiasis. So that is like a slate blue-gray discoloration of the skin, and that's generalized as well. Mercury exposure and arsenic exposure can also cause hyperpigmentation. And in terms of medications, the one commonly known to cause blue discoloration specifically, not just hyperpigmentation, is amiodarone. But ones that cause hyperpigmentation, chemo medications, anti-malarials, oral contraceptives can do it as well. Smoking, diltiazem, minocycline, TCAs, zidobutene, tacrolimus. So there's like a list of things known to cause diffuse hyperpigmentation. And then I think in terms of the hematologic things that could cause that, I think probably what's been on people's minds is, so are we sure this person's not cyanotic? Normal SATs. Based on a blue abdomen, I mean. Right. And and that doesn't feel like cyanosis. Like what's where cyanosis is like blue. Exactly. I totally agree. So what about like any blood disorders that can cause blue discoloration of the skin that anyone's aware of? I don't know a specific blood disorder, but we talked about a lot of metals that could do it, and lead is one that's on your list for microcytic anemia. I don't know if that causes blue discoloration. Interesting. So I maybe also, lead. I also don't know if enough about sideroblastosis and the and the kind of the differential for sideroblasts to know if that could be an explanation for everything. Those are those are great thoughts. So one thing to consider at least is methemoglobinemia could turn you kind of diffusely blue. And you can get that as like a congenital disease, which does not apply here because she wasn't blue before and she is now. But the acquired causes, so there's other drugs, so dapsone, local anesthetics, nitrate compounds, so either inhaled nitrates or like nitroglycerin, chloroquine, so like anti-malarials can do that, metoclopramide. There's also important chemical and environmental exposures. So in people working in dye rubber factories, aniline dyes, antifreeze, benzene solvents, various cleaners and disinfectants, resin uh, melting can also release fumes that can cause discoloration. That list I just gave you is specifically a list for blue discoloration. And just other weird things, amyloid. There's a couple case reports that I could find of amyloid turning, turning someone blue, although more usually localized blue discoloration. Other things that I think just belong on the list for like hyperpigmentation, Whipple's disease, Addison's hyperthyroid. So that's a pretty extensive list for a pretty specific clinical feature. And so we go on to test for some of these things, and I'll give you those results in a second. One item that I want to bring up is the toxic oil syndrome. So I mentioned that before. The toxic oil syndrome happened in 1981, and this was uh, when rapeseed oil was used to denature, or sorry, was denatured by aniline intentionally, and it was supposed to be for industrial use. And then it was purchased uh, on the cheap and illegally refined to remove the aniline. That was then illegally sold as olive oil in Spain, and it actually led to the death of over 600 people and about 25,000 people were exposed. And the syndrome of, the toxic oil syndrome is characterized by acute myalgias, fever, neuropathy, systemic sclerosis like skin disease, as well as pulmonary hypertension. The only reason I'm bringing this up specifically is because aniline is one of the only exposures that I can find that is in both the list for systemic sclerosis and for blue skin discoloration. That's the only bridge that I can find. However, she does not work in a rubber factory or work with dyes as far as we know or has any exposure to herbicides as far as we know. So you ask for a skin biopsy. 
makes perfect sense. So we, over the course of her um, workup, seeing multiple who I think are considered to be like excellent dermatologists and a number of rheumatologists and general internists, she gets as far as I can count eight punch biopsies, chest, finger, palm, arm, and back. There's no definite histologic abnormalities with any of it. They just comment on the pigment change. They do PASD staining, which you would do if you were looking for um, a TB or Whipple's, and that was negative. There's no inflammatory changes. There's no granulomas, no foreign material. There's no pigment deposition. There's no vasculitis. There's normal iron staining. Hemochromatosis is also on the list, right? Melanin staining was minimal because if you talk to a dermatologist, they might have a very different approach. And they say, well, I differentiate hyperpigmentation into hypermelanosis and non-hypermelanosis. I'm not sophisticated enough to like know my way around that. They do electron microscopy as well, and that's negative. What I think is, other than the bummer that is these eight punch biopsies, what I think is bizarre is that the finger biopsy, and I'm not sure precisely where on the finger it's taken from, it didn't show features of systemic sclerosis. Now, they weren't asked to look for that, but I think I would have expected them to comment on it if it was there because it's a pathologic skin disease. I don't know what to make of that, and that biopsy was done perhaps too early in her disease progression. Maybe it wasn't a good sample. I just found that uncomfortable. I mean, obviously, someone has to go talk to the pathologist, right? Absolutely. Like, so if the requisition says thick skin... Or doesn't say anything helpful, which is I think commonly the case, and you get an unhelpful result back. I would go and just make sure with the reading pathologist that that they looked and considered systemic sclerosis. I'm surprised they they uh, that they did the punches. <coughs> they did multiple punches, but I'm surprised at least if the differential were looking for the fascia, that they wouldn't have they wouldn't have uh, done a deeper biopsy. That would be one thing. And the other thing is that I haven't done this to make a diagnosis of scleroderma, but I've seen enough scleroderma to understand that healing isn't great in the in the areas of skin that are biopsied. So to do one biopsy, I think, would be courageous, but to do eight biopsies may be bordering on a different descriptor. But uh, So that, that really surprises me. So what about um, looking at some of these heavy metals and toxic exposures? I mean, that could fit this kind of picture that she's had this slow decline and this slow hyperpigmentation. Would that show up in any of these biopsies or do we need to do serum tests to look for them? And then one more question I had was, where did her hyperpigmentation actually start in her body? Would that be a potential clue as to maybe where she got exposure? Great question. So as far as we could detect, I mean, she did not totally, like she didn't feel that she was blue colored. so. As far as we could tell, the pigment changes started in her hands and by her description kind of like spread to the rest of her body. Um, hard to know. Uh, in terms of, to answer your, your earlier questions, so an extensive workup is done. She sees an endocrinologist who excludes Addison's hemochromatosis, uh, Cushing's. She sees a couple of dermatologists and in addition to the punch biopsies, most of them were thankfully of skin that wasn't involved by the sclerosis but she actually has heavy metals tested for. So some serum, some in the biopsy, you can see many of the deposition um, diseases on the biopsy and on electron microscopy. So that is part of the thorough workup, but they exclude mercury, silver levels are normal. They do urine porphyrins, although they kind of have a low index of suspicion for 
porphyria. They were thinking like porphyria cutanea tarda. They do a metabolic workup, so for alcaptonuria, which causes ochronosis. And so they ruled that out by uh, urine homogentesic acid. So I think that dermatology got as far, and I, I have to say, like, I thought their consults were pretty incredible. Like, they pulled all these various heavy metals uh, out of their hat to say, like, oh, arsenic poisoning can cause this. Like, well, when was the last time anyone saw arsenic poisoning? Probably a while ago. And their thorough workup was negative. And lead? Has lead been tested? That's a good question. I don't know if lead was tested. Because of the heavy metals, that's, I mean, we don't see it much now, but I'm under the impression that lead poisoning was fairly common. That's how it made it to our tails differential for microcytic anemia that we tell med students, don't worry about the lead poisoning part. You'll never see it. That, that's such a great suggestion because I, I don't think, I think when she saw rheumatology, um, the microcytic anemia felt like, eh, like she has a low, she has a low ferritin. It's a pretty convincing picture for microcytic anemia. Um, so that kind of felt wrapped up nicely. Um, so I don't think that really fussed anyone too much. But you're right, like you've tied together potentially a couple different components of the case with interestingly though, so so here's some detective work that I that we did that I think is relevant because you're wondering about lead toxicity. Well, why her and no one else, right? So we called their local hospital and their local newspaper to see if anyone had reported turning blue or any weird toxicities. And they said that they didn't know what I was talking about and to stop calling. <laughs> but they said no, so no blue people. Um, we asked where she was getting her cigarettes, and she said it was from a local reserve. And we asked if anyone else was smoking the same cigarettes that she knew. And she did know other people smoking the same cigarettes. So we thought probably not that. Um, we looked into where her water supply was. So she wasn't using well water. She was using city water. And as far as we can see, her city water um, plant was not near any lead factories or um, like contaminating factories. We didn't see any local silver, gold, or mercury mines on any maps. There is another potential. Uh, so the lead poisoning today, because of the changing of the paints, is not seen the way we used to see it or the way it was described. But the, the place that people do become lead, develop lead toxicity is from gun ranges. So enclosed gun ranges are the, so the people that fire rifles or pistols. So if you want to tie this together, there's a woman that goes to a gun range. The vibration from her, the gun, precipitates raynos and the thickening of the skin and the toxicity from the lead causes her discoloration so I think you have to ask the right question that, that's and it. she shot herself in the belly and that's how she lost 30 pounds and no one asked her no one examined her belly no I don't believe it that's crazy that's not possible Sherlock I, that's a very Sherlockian answer but no way yeah. I so I I, ha I have to admit I didn't ask that question but Shame that information was not surrendered um, but that you're right if that was part of the history that would tie certain aspects together. <laughs> Barry is so happy with himself right now, you can't even, no, it's no, like, he's, like he's glowing, the heat is coming off I, him right I'm now. Just, I'm saying that this, that's where we see lead toxicity. I'm kind of interested about these cigarettes. You said that she's, she gets them from a reserve, are they like all natural product, are they hand rolled? They sell them, they sell them contraband. Uh, contraband. Yeah, so I, I don't really know a lot about the cigarettes and we didn't get, uh, like we didn't uh, take any for specific testing. But that, that's kind of what we were thinking. We're like, what is the exposure? Like, what is she, what does she have that no one else has? 
And I think that's where we kind of, that's where the exposure theory kind of falls apart. No one else has it. It's just her. And she's not doing anything that's really different from anyone else. What about her her medications? I mean, back to the fentanyl and the oxycodone, does she get that in a in, in a pharmacy or how does she how does she arrive at those? I, I believe those are from a pharmacy. I did see one, I believe it was a case report or maybe it was just like a, a website blog. I cannot quite remember, but there was one report of blue skin discoloration with fentanyl patch. Uh, I don't believe that that was diffuse skin discoloration. So as far as I know, that like wouldn't explain the whole thing. And even while we're trying to explain the blue skin discoloration, few things on that list cross to yeah. the like connective tissue disease arena. So essentially after a while, investigations just kind of stop and everyone agrees that she is blue. (laughs) And I think everyone just decides to move on and treat her for, as far as we can tell symptomatically, is her systemic sclerosis. Uh, I got in touch with her recently and she actually reports that her skin is lightening, not lightening like from this guy, but lightening up. And she's developed digital ulcers and definitive ray notes, no question anymore which are kind of very much part of the natural history or progressive history of systemic sclerosis. So I think then, like, despite the ANA negativity and the strangeness of presentation, I, I still feel like there's comfort with that component of the diagnosis and comfort saying that it doesn't specifically explain the pigment changes. Systemic sclerosis can cause hyperhypopigmentation, which is felt to be post-inflammatory change. And lots of different diseases that cause skin inflammation can have post-inflammatory changes. So that's actually a common cause for, for uh, hyperhypopigmentation. So, so still today, we don't know why she's blue. I think that what was interesting to me, other than the uh, singular nature of the case, the uniqueness, is that years after seeing the case, Dr. Voye uses the term window into a case, looking for that thing that is going to get you to the answer. And I have always reverse applied that to this case. What was the specific thing that we could come up with a differential for that would get us close to the answer? Now, it didn't work in this case, but I still think like that was, to me, a super valuable concept that as a resident medical student, I don't think I really like was employing. I didn't use that on every unusual case that I saw. And now I try and think about that when I see an unusual case. What is specific enough that it filters out the noise of the case? So what do you do in this case where all the subspecialists that you've sent the person to says like, well, I don't know. Anyways, goodbye. (laughs) You know, like, what do you do if you're the primary general internist or the primary care physician? Like, who do you turn to? What's the next step? Well, what's the problem? I mean, what problem are we trying to solve now? So, so if we, she has systemic sclerosis, we're, are we trying to answer her weight loss, her systemic symptoms, her iron deficiency? Have we shown it's still have we shown it's iron deficient? Because if those are the questions, then we have some answers and we don't have other answers. It's at the beginning of the case, and we got sidetracked into a blue into a skin coloration discoloration, which may not have anything to do with the case. You're right. So. As far as I understand, the microcytic anemia has improved. I do not know if it's gone. Um, and she's not on iron supplementation right now. So you're right, that component of the case still is unsolved. I think that's as far as I've gone in terms of 
uh, follow-up for this person. So I don't really know any more of the information about her case. Let, let me turn it to you. If you if she were here, and what would you do now that you haven't done already in, in terms of further evaluation? What does she need? Does she want further evaluation? I think for the blue skin part of it is now it's aesthetic and it's interest. Like I think the investigations for it are not going to like answer the rest of the case other than I think like the idea of lead toxicity is like a great idea. That's kind of, I wish I had thought of that. That's really clever. You know, she doesn't have the other features of like chronic lead toxicity as, as far as I recall. I think that those items, either I work up or I farm out to someone who is capable of working those things up extensively to exclude Part of my referral would be, like, please exclude the extremely rare things that cause this Mm -hmm. because the case is rare. I think, like I said, I think rheumatology or I would be happy with the the systemic sclerosis diagnosis at this point and that management and workup would kind of proceed along its own track. But the microcytic anemia, the blue skin discoloration, I think that is its own workup that I would have to ask for help for. But if I've asked for help, and everything comes back and they say, I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is, I don't know what I would do. Because I don't think I've been in that position in a little while. I think I have like the luxury of being part of like a subspecialty where you get to, well, we've ruled out like the nasty stuff and send back to the, you know, whoever sent the referral. That's not fair, but I think that that is sometimes how it is. So I don't know, like, how do family doctors deal with this uncertainty? How, or, is, she, or, how is she feeling? Is she getting worse? Is she getting better? Like. Overall, it sounds like her raynodes and hands have gotten worse, but generally she sounds like she's doing maybe a little bit better from the skin perspective, which also kind of follows like the natural history, like the skin does tend to loosen up over time. So generally I'd say like kind of on balance, stable with progressive raynodes. I think I would do a few more things, like if this lady was mine. All along she's been on fentanyl and another opiate, and like, I don't know, is it possible that somehow those are contributing to any of this? Maybe. I'm not a big fan of long-term opiates anyway. And so I'd be looking to get her off those anyway and just see what happens. Um, I think some people pick up micronutrient deficiencies from a little bit of malabsorption or from weird diets. And I put sometimes, like when I'm stuck, I put someone on a multivitamin just to see what happens for like six months and then bring them back. Like right now this lady's stuck. She's not going anywhere. I give her six months worth of, worth of a multivitamin and see what happens. You know, in terms of window in the case, the other window that I'm interested in is actually going to this lady's house and looking in her windows. Like, what does she eat? What is going on in there? Like, is there obviously some weird problem in her house? Does she live with someone? Do you know? Uh, I think her husband. Yeah. Yeah, And and I would really want to talk to this lady's husband. Like, what do you think is going on? Or, you know, part of what happens is this lady has probably told her history a hundred thousand times. Right now she's stuck. She's not even trying to remember what happened. She's trying to remember what she previously said happened. And so I want to know from him, what do you think happened? Like, could you recreate this story for me? Because I still can't reconcile. I know I'm stuck on this 30 pounds of weight loss thing, but I still can't reconcile it. None of the things that we've brought up would account for 30 pounds of unexplained weight loss. So I want to know from him. And he he might say like, oh yeah, she was obviously, she had this thing happen to her that accounts for all of that. And then I could at least park that. So, so I would, I would get her off the opiates because I don't know like what they're doing. I would put her on a multivitamin. I know you're looking at me like I'm a crazy person. I would anyway. Not at all. I I think that's uh, really thoughtful actually. (laughs) And then I would go to her house or I would say like, I would bring bring the husband in. I would bring the husband in and get his history. Her, his his version of her history and then I would 
see if someone or my like if she was a, if I was in her town or whatever I'd actually go and see like maybe they have a really unusual diet that to them doesn't seem really unusual but is right not worthy of mention yeah there's so many things that the patient doesn't think are impo- doesn't think are important but then you find out like she's you know maybe she eats like only tuna she eats all albacore tuna all she ever eats is she eats five cans of tuna a day she just hasn't thought to bring it up tuna is so full of mercury this lady could have mercury poisoning for all we know and maybe it was never checked like I just think, like, if you go to Barry's house, all there is is miso. Miso, miso, miso. All there is is miso. And for some reason, there's a lot of craft dinner, which I don't really understand. I'm sure he doesn't need it. Like, at some point, the miso is just going to start dripping out of his ears. And then people are going to say, why is all that miso coming out of your ears? And he's going to say, I don't know. What's with this brown, green skin Exactly. You could only tell by going to his house and seeing that all he eats is miso. So but, th- but that I- reminds me of the Magic School Bus episode where Arthur... Turns orange. I'm getting it. Okay, blank stares in the room. Never <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, I know exactly. What you're Arthur about. was it? Was Arthur on the magic? Arnold. Arnold. Arnold turned Arnold. orange because he ate too many carrots. It's safe to joke like this because everyone has already stopped listening to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I just I think there's a bit of like kind of logical detective work that could be done here that isn't like fancy rheumatology detective work, but still is worth digging some spending some time and I, I agree it's, so zinc as a deficiency I mean gives rise to a variety of things I think mm-hmm. diets are, I'd stop the medications for whatever it's worth but I really I'm still focused on the 30 pound weight loss and the iron deficiency anemia that doesn't respond to iron so to me there's still a, an abnormality in her bowel that's we haven't explained and that would be the only thing that I would do right now uh, and what steps that, that's the only other thing I'd investigate if that were continuing to be a problem. I think the bigger problem is going to, how you're going to manage your renos uh, when she's ulcerating. That's going to be, I think, I think you'll find an answer quicker than you, you think. You know, that, the other thing about the iron deficiency is, is it doesn't throw up on any lists, but iron deficiency that's caused by low-grade hemolysis you know, you think of hemolytic anemia as being a macrocytic anemia, but when it's very low grade, enough of the free iron ends up in your bloodstream and then filtered through the kidney and then peed out that you actually can get microcytic anemia from chronic low-grade hemolysis. So if the lady's never had a hemolytic workup, it should be part of her iron deficiency workup. It didn't sort of come up earlier. It may be that her bowel needs to be interrogated better than it is. Like, something about this lady that to me sounds like she's got an infiltrative disorder I, of some I, kind. She had, she had an initial inflammatory or infectious insult and then or, or maybe I don't, I don't know i can't again the 30 pounds is still on my mind but the scleral the systemic sclerosis may have caused her to have like like sort of secondary amyloid and she hasn't had a full-on amyloid workup yet she'd have the amyloid that doesn't show up in your protein electrophoresis so yeah i don't know i think there's still work to be done here um i don't know if she's still being followed by a general internist but a really thoughtful general internist would still have i think something to contribute here obviously i'm totally biased but things like coordinate coordinating a gi workup and all of that and the hemolytic workup the the gp it's probably too much for the gp it's probably it's not in the wheelhouse of the rheumatologist or the dermatologist so that's that's the other thing i would add yeah, I think I think you're I think you're absolutely so so maybe she needs a laparoscopy. Maybe she you know, maybe that would be a clue. I mean somehow again, somehow we haven't answered the first the first two questions that were presented. I like the idea of returning to the history and physical, which is what we're taught, and I think the first thing that most senior residents drop from their history is extensive social history. Because most of the time it doesn't answer the case but it's actually super important and so you're saying like look in her window like 
what's her life like? What are your hobbies? Like, do yeah. you work with a lot of like epoxies? Like, are you a boat builder or what's your jam? And maybe you are going to find an exposure there that would be completely normal in her community that is unusual here. Yeah. Um, so I, I totally agree with that. So I think we're going to bring it to a close there. Thanks for tuning in. If any of our listeners have seen a similar case, although I doubt it, uh, or have any thoughts that uh, you'd like to share, you can go to stpaulsmorningreport.com to get in touch. Our email address is foundationmorningreport at gmail.com. And if your clue leads to us solving this case, then you get a big hug from me or no hug, depending on which you'd prefer. So we'll leave it there and we'll see you next time.